Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now you might be able to tell from the sound of my voice that I'm still getting over the remnants of a cold that I had this weekend. Um, But it was still a great Thanksgiving weekend anyway. Um, And all of the Thanksgiving traditions and festivities and the being with family and the eating good food and the turkey bingo like what, what we play... Um, you can ask about that later if you don't know what that is. But um, all of these things, I think, were a really good opportunity, actually, for us to live according to what I think is really the overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes and the message of this chapter that we're going to read tonight and, and look, look at together tonight, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, now, as we read this chapter in... Um, in just a moment, you're probably going to be wondering to yourself as we read it, how in the world I would get the impression that this has anything to do with Thanksgiving. Uh, but I think it does, and I think that if we rightly understand it uh, in light of the book as a whole, then this is actually a uh, passage that is very relevant to Thanksgiving. Uh, so if you would all stand, if you're able, in honor of reading God's word, and we're going to be reading all of chapter 2 together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I saw in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 
for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this night. Thank you so much for um, just the Thanksgiving weekend that we enjoyed. Thank you for all of the blessings that you show us every day. Uh, Father, thank you most of all for your son Jesus and for the work that he's done on our behalf through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Father, I pray now for this time that we have together to look into your word. I pray that you would uh, lead me and give me clarity of speech and, and proper conviction and accuracy with your word. And, and Father, I pray that it would go forth and that, that it would have its desired effect in every heart here tonight. Thank you for everyone who is here. I pray that you would bless their willingness to be here tonight. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an American novelist in the early 1900s named Thomas Wolfe. And listen to what Thomas Wolfe said about the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what he said. Of all I have ever seen or learned, Ecclesiastes seems to me the noblest, the wisest, and the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth and also the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I am not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. Now, I don't know very much about Thomas Wolfe, and I'm not even sure whether or not he was... A, a Christian, but he obviously felt that there was something extra special and powerful about the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you might not share 
Thomas Wolfe's assessment. Ecclesiastes might be a book that you are kind of uncomfortable with as you read it in your quiet time. Maybe it doesn't really give you very many warm fuzzies in your quiet time because it's very honest. It's very uh, brutally honest. It's, 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 um, he doesn't hold back. He's very, um, he's very, uh, he speaks very plainly about what he thinks about life. And he asks hard questions and really says things that are difficult to understand if you don't understand them in light of the whole of what he says in the book. But what is it about this book that it would, that a book like Ecclesiastes would stay relevant to human beings for so long? Why does it have a unique kind of staying power, even right to the present day? You know, I mean, compare this with a book like Leviticus, which is just as much the Word of God as Ecclesiastes is. Uh, But it's really hard for people today to, and even for Christians today, I think, to resonate with a book like, uh, like Leviticus with all that it says about sacrifice and animals and blood and what in the world. It's a difficult book to to understand and for us to resonate with today because of all of these things that are so far from our everyday experience. Uh, But what I think is uh, that what I think makes Ecclesiastes different is that Ecclesiastes wrestles with the big questions of life. It wrestles with the kinds of things that philosophers have been talking about and debating about for as long as philosophy has been around. Questions like, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of it all? Why are we here? What gain is there in life under the sun? If you look real, real quick back at, at chapter 1, you can see kind of the leading question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. In the third verse of chapter 1, if you look there real quick, chapter 1 and verse 3 uh, the writer says this, and by the way, um, the Ecclesiastes is traditionally believed to have been written by Solomon, um, and even though he's not named explicitly in the book as the book's author, I think there are good indications that it was Solomon who wrote it, um, and so I, I hold that traditional view. But uh, look at chapter 1 and verse 3. This is what Solomon says. It's the leading question of the whole book. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun. In other words, what does man gain by all of his labor under the sun? What is all of his work good for? What is the ultimate payoff of it all? So now in chapter 2, Solomon is basically going to run some tests. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna make some experiments. Um, and he's trying to answer this question of where ultimate gain can be found in life under the sun? How can I find or where can I find ultimate satisfaction? And what we're going to see over and over again is that Solomon's just going to come up short in his search. He's going to look out at life under the sun. He's going to say, where is ultimate satisfaction to be found out here in life under the sun? And he's going to come up short. He's going to come up empty-handed. He's not going to find what he's looking for. So the first thing that Solomon experiments with is what we might uh, call just plain old self-indulgence or just pleasures in general. This is, this is what he says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee, or in other words, I will test thee with mirth. Mirth just being another, another word for like 
amusement, pleasures, entertainment, things like that. I will test thee with mirth. So what, what did that involve? Well, he gives us a big, long list of what that involved. In verse 4, he starts it. He says, he made great works. And one of those great works that Solomon did, I think uh, we could say, is the, uh, is the construction of the first temple, which is sometimes called Solomon's temple. That was certainly a very significant thing that Solomon did and that he was responsible for. Um, but just... Just me and, and thinking about, in general, about large structures, you know, I can imagine that if I were an architect and I had designed some kind of giant football stadium or something that held 100,000 people, or I had designed a skyscraper in downtown New York and I oversaw the construction of that skyscraper um, and, and so that my name was forever attached to that skyscraper, and I was the one given the credit for being the one who's responsible for that skyscraper being there in the sky. I would imagine that I would feel pretty doggone accomplished after I had finished that. You know what I mean? I mean, that, I would feel accomplished, you know. Um, you say you finally painted your porch and got your laundry done. Well, I built a skyscraper, you know. I mean, I would, I would take pride in that. I would feel accomplished. Um, but that's not the only kind of thing that, that Solomon did. He said he planted vineyards, he got servants, he got cattle, he got silver and gold, he got musicians, whatever earthly pleasures and amusements that he could get, that he could afford, he went out and he got it. He went all out with this experiment. He just heaped up pleasures and amusements. And a significant thing for us to remember here is that we are reading the words of a king why would that be significant? Well, I think it's because if anybody on earth is in a position to be able to find satisfaction in stuff, in amusements, in pleasures, in material things, if anybody in this world is able to find satisfaction in, in those things, it would certainly be a king. A king can have whatever material pleasure that he wants, especially a king like Solomon with all of the riches that he had. But at the end of the day, what's the conclusion that he's going to come to? He says it in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Solomon said, Then I looked on all the, works of my all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. So that word there, vanity, is a word that's used over and over and over again in this chapter and over and over and over again in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's a really important word uh, for understanding the book. Um, and, and that word vanity refers to things that are fleeting, things that are here and then gone. So if you think about um, Psalm 144, Psalm 144 says that man is like a breath. That word breath there is the same word that's used here for vanity. He's going to look out at these things, these material pleasures of life, and he's calling them vanity. They're like a, they're like a breath. They're like a mist. Think about what James says, um, that your life is like a breath or your life is like a vapor. So I think he's alluding to this same idea. Your life is, in a sense, vanity. And I, and I, I don't think that that means meaningless. There are some translations, um, particularly the NIV, that translate this as meaninglessness or something like that. And I think that's a little bit strong. I think what he's, what he's saying there is that it's just fleeting. It doesn't last. It's here and then gone. It's like the satisfaction I get from them is just so short-lived. 
So it doesn't matter how many great works you do. It doesn't matter how many treasures you lay up under the sun. They're never going to be enough to satisfy you, ultimately. And if you look to those things, expecting them to satisfy you, you're always going to be sorely disappointed. That's for sure. And that's a lesson that Solomon learned here. First experiment, self-indulgence, amusements, and pleasure. Conclusion? Vanity. So now Solomon's going to look elsewhere. Solomon's going to look uh, for something else to give him ultimate satisfaction. He's going he's to conduct a second experiment. And he says this in verse 12. Verse 12, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. So he's going he's gonna to consider now whether or not wisdom is the path, whether or not wisdom is where it's at, whether or not wisdom is how he can obtain lasting satisfaction. But he says he's also even going to consider madness and folly because who knows, maybe the best way to live is just to live like you don't have any sense at all. But he's mainly just going to consider wisdom here. And a lot of times people will uh, ask uh, what exactly wisdom refers to, or specifically, is there a difference between wisdom and knowledge? Um, and one thing that I've often heard is, is something like, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. So wisdom tells you how to rightly apply the knowledge that you have in real life and act and live according to it. And that's probably a good, a good way to basically understand the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Something, something funny that I've that I've heard uh, is um, uh, knowledge tells you that a tomato is a fruit. Apparently a tomato is a fruit. Um, doesn't seem like a fruit, but apparently it is technically. Knowledge tells you that a tomato is a fruit, while wisdom tells you not to put it in fruit salad. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I imagine that would be pretty gross. I don't know much about cooking, but that sounds pretty gross to me. So, <laughs> um, but I think that probably the best way for us to illustrate what wisdom means for Solomon here, what he's after, what he's, what he's striving for, uh, the best way for us to illustrate it, I think, is pointing to that story in the Bible that's recorded really for the purpose of illustrating Solomon's great wisdom. This is in 1 Kings chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just kind of summarize what's there. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon prays for wisdom from the Lord, and the Lord grants his request. Uh, the Lord gives Solomon great wisdom. And then there's a story that's told right after that, and it's for the purpose of illustrating Solomon's great wisdom. What was that story? It was the story of the, the court case involving the two prostitutes who were arguing over a baby. One of the, one of the women said, uh, you know, this baby is mine. And the other woman said, no, she's lying. This baby's mine. And they went back and forth over this. And Solomon finally had enough of it and just said, okay, then we'll settle this. Let's cut the baby in half. And each one of you can have half the baby. How's that sound? And that was a way of bringing out who the real mother was because she protested and she said, no, no, don't kill the baby. Let the baby live. And that, and that demonstrated to Solomon that she was the real mother because she wanted to save the baby's life. And so, and so right after that story, it says that all of Israel heard about this and they marveled at Solomon's great wisdom. So I think that what wisdom he, is here is it's a kind of shrewdness. It's a kind of 
Um, it's like understanding the way that the world works and understanding how to make the world work for you. It's, it's, not even, it's not even really, I don't think, to be necessarily equated with godliness. You can actually be ungodly but still be a, a wise person in this, in this sense. Um, it's, it's, it's having a mind that can think carefully and critically so that you can bring about success for you. I think that that's, I think that, that that's what the idea is here with, with wisdom. So it's not talking about godliness. He's not saying like being godly in your mindset is, 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 you know, is, is meaningless or is vanity. Um, he's just saying, um, well, before I get ahead of myself, um, so is that where ultimate satisfaction is to be found? In great wisdom like that, well, what's the conclusion that Solomon comes to? Well, ultimately, he's going to say vanity, but his, but his conclusion is actually a little bit more nuanced here, isn't it? Because look at, look at verse, look at verse uh, 13. He's actually going to say that there is some value in wisdom. Look at verse 13. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. In other words, wisdom is better than foolishness. I found out that much. Wisdom is better than foolishness. As far as light excelleth darkness... Verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. So Solomon says it is better to be smart than to be dumb. That's a pretty good lesson. It's better to be smart than to be dumb. You're going to get along better in this life. You're going to have a better experience of life in general if you are a wise person rather than a foolish person, but Solomon's not, not going not gonna to stop the question there. He's not going to end the issue there. He's not going to leave it alone there. He's going to keep pushing the question. He's going to push it farther, and he's going to say, yeah, but ultimately, what is the value of wisdom? Look at verse 15. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Verse 16. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the, more than of the fool forever, seeing that which is now in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. You know what's going to happen to a fool when he gets to the end of his life? He's going to die. And you know what's going to happen to the wise man when he gets to the end of his life? He's going to die, too. They're both going to die, just, just the same. It's often been said that death is the great equalizer. So what ultimately then was valuable about all of Solomon's wisdom? Second experiment, wisdom. It's wisdom where we can find ultimate satisfaction in life. Conclusion, well, it's better than foolishness, but it's still vanity. At the end of the day, it's here, then gone. It's fleeting. And all of this disappointment that Solomon's feeling as a result of his reflections on life under the sun is going to lead him to the very hard-hitting and honest statement of verse 17. Verse 17, therefore, I hated life. Solomon hated Life, because he couldn't find anything in it that was ultimately satisfying, that was ultimately valuable to him. He couldn't find what the ultimate profit was to be gained. He couldn't find satisfaction that was lasting, that was solid, concrete, that stayed put. 
It was all vanity at the end of the day. If I do all of these great works and I, and I, I, I gather up all of these things, these material, this material wealth and possessions for myself, if I do all of these things for the purpose of finding satisfaction, but they don't satisfy, and then if I do, if I, if I do all of this work in, in, in trying to maintain, uh, in trying to, to, to become a wise person and growing in wisdom and knowledge, if I do all of that, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't make me any better off than the fool in terms of death. I'm, I'm going to die just like the fool is. Then what is the value of it all? And what's the point of even being here? There was an atheist English professor named Joseph Crutch who said this. There is no reason to suppose that a man's life has any more meaning than the life of the humblest insect that crawls from one annihilation to another. Well then, that's edifying. Albert Camus was an atheist philosopher who said that the only serious question left for philosophers to discuss was the question of suicide. Because why not? If this world really is the product of a gigantic blind chance accident, then all I am is one big accident and all you are are accidents. And so why don't we all just get this over with? It's going to happen eventually. So why don't we all just end this life that we live right now? What is the point? You see, the people who would say those kinds of things, the people who would suggest those kinds of things, are people who live in the first 23 verses of Ecclesiastes. Of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this chapter that we're looking at. They live in the first 23 verses of chapter 2, and they never get to verse 24. Because in verse 24, I think that there is a significant shift that happens in Solomon's thinking. And Solomon begins to get some clarity. And he begins to see what life under the sun is really about. And reflections on who God is start to come into the picture. Nowhere up, to, up until this point in chapter 2 has anything been said about God. But reflections about God and who he is and as the source of all good things, start to come into the picture. Look with me at verse 24. Now, you might be tempted to read verse 24 with that same kind of pessimistic attitude, that depressing tone that he's had all the way through chapter 2. And you might just, you might just carry that right into to verse 24 and, and read it as him just kind of being sarcastic. Uh, but I think he's actually landed on something good, and he's actually being sincere in what he says here. So look with me at verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, and this is key, that it was from the hand of God. Verse 25, for who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? Now, unfortunately, I think that that's kind of an odd translation in the King James. And, and most modern translations are going to say something like, for apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
okay? So you see, acknowledging God in heaven as the source of every good thing that we get to experience in this life changes everything about our perspective on life under the sun. It changes everything. Because we start to understand that, that God hasn't required us to, to do the kinds of things that Solomon's doing. He hasn't required us to, to, to go out and try to find some kind of lasting accomplishment or some kind of lasting satisfaction in life under the sun. Life under the sun was never meant to give you ultimate satisfaction. Do you realize that? Life under the sun was never meant to give you ultimate satisfaction. So what exactly was Solomon's big fat problem in the first 23 verses of chapter 2? Why does Solomon hate life so much? It's because he was looking to life under the sun and expecting life under the sun to give him something that it was never intended to give him. That's what his problem was. And that's why he hated life. If you're here tonight and you find yourself hating life, and there may be some of you here who say, that's me. I hate life right now. It very well could be that you are in a place where you are looking to life under the sun and expecting life under the sun to give you something it was never intended to give you. Only God can give us the kind, that kind of satisfaction that we seek. And we're going to spend an eternity being satisfied in him. Okay, We have that to look forward to, brothers and sisters. I love what C.S. Lewis said along, along these lines. He said, um, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That's absolutely true. And the old song is true. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures and my hope are placed beyond the blue. Beyond this life under the sun, beyond the sun, is where my treasure and hope is found. See, there's a reason why Jesus said, do not lay up treasures on earth. To put that in the language of Ecclesiastes, do not lay up treasures under the sun where moth and rust destroy. Rather, lay up treasures in heaven. Don't do the kinds of things that Solomon was doing. I don't think when he says, don't lay up treasures on earth, I don't think he's saying, you know, don't make any money or don't get stuff. I think he's saying, don't do the sort of things that Solomon was doing in Ecclesiastes where you're thinking that, you know, you're going to amass all of these, this wealth and possessions and amusements and that that's somehow going to be lasting satisfaction for you. It's not going to be. It's going to fade. But I think that there's actually more to be said here, too. Okay? Because it, it's true. Everything I just said is, is true that life under the sun cannot ultimately satisfy and was never meant to satisfy. And it's true that this world is not our home, we're just passing through. But at the same time, and more in line, I think, with what Solomon's telling us here in, this, in these last few verses of the chapter, is that ironically, the people who realize and understand 
that God never meant for them to find ultimate satisfaction in life under the sun are nevertheless the people who find the most satisfaction in life under the sun. I'll say that again. The people who realize and understand that God never meant for them to find ultimate satisfaction in life under the sun are the people who actually find or who actually can find the most satisfaction in life under the sun. Because when you've got an outlook on life that acknowledges God who is in heaven and acknowledges him as the source of every good gift then you'll know how to simply take pleasure and delight in experiencing the good gifts that he gives you every day and acknowledge them as gifts that he gives you. Acknowledging him as the source and thanking him for those things. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he said that God gives us, God gives us richly all things to enjoy to enjoy. Why would you need a reason to enjoy something? You don't. Enjoying something is pretty much an end in itself. When you acknowledge God as you enjoy his gifts, that pleases his heart. And it gives him glory God's glorified when you enjoy the good gifts that he gives you every day. Acknowledge him as the source and thank him for it. He takes pleasure in that. And we take pleasure in that because his gifts are good. Um, just to give you an illustration, um, several months ago, I was helping my dad plant some corn out in his garden. And I just happened to be studying Ecclesiastes at this point in time because I was getting ready to, to teach from it some in, in Sunday school. And so I was in a very Ecclesiastes state of mind <laughs> as, 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 as me and Dad uh, made our way down the corn rows, putting the corn in. Um, uh, so, so I started reflecting and I started thinking about the meaning and purpose of what we were doing. Why are we planting this corn? <laughs> well, we, we plant the corn so that we can eat it and, and not die. Now, obviously, we don't, we, don't, we don't need to plant our own corn. We can get it other ways. But somebody's got to do some planting or producing out there in order for us to, to eat. So just work with my illustration here. So, uh, but basically, we plant corn so that we can eat, so that we can have energy, so that we can plant corn so that we can eat, so that we can have energy, etc. You get the idea, and on and on it goes. There's a circularity here. It's a very circular process, isn't it? But I think that I've actually left out something very, very important about the purpose of why we were planting corn. And it might sound silly at first, but I think that this is true, that another big reason, another big part of the reason why we were planting corn is that corn is really good. You know it? And peas are really good. And watermelon is really good. Um, my dad's garden peas are out of this world. I mean, it does my heart good when I walk in and I see a big, fresh pot of those peas on their stove. They're out of this world. They're really, really good. 
Why does my dad plant watermelons? Well, one big part of that reason is so that Luke can sit at the table with Grammy and eat watermelon chunks as fast as she can cut them. Pure delight is a big part of the reason why we plant watermelon. And when you enjoy those gifts and you acknowledge God as the source of those gifts, he's pleased, believe it or not, and he's glorified in that, believe it or not. And all I've talked about so far is food. <laughs> because that's, that's all really, uh, really Ecclesiastes mentions, aside from enjoyment of your labor, eat and drink and enjoy, your la- enjoy the work that you do. Um, so... You know, and food is really just our basic need. But when you have the kind of God-centered outlook on life that would allow you to delight in even those most basic needs being met, then that is going to make it all the more easy for you to just be amazed at how much more he gives you than that. Think of all the other kinds of gifts God gives you. Houses, clothes, vehicles, air conditioning, your church family, friends, your spouse, Children and grandchildren. Is there anything sweeter in this world than children or grandchildren? I don't even know experientially that joy yet, but I know, but I, I just know somehow that there's probably nothing sweeter in this world. I saw a video on Facebook the other day, and it was a um, there was it was a daughter who was giving her dad a birthday present, I think, and she was filming him as he opened up this this gift. And so he opens up the box and the first thing he sees is a bunch of candy. You know, he pulls out some Mike and Ike's and some Butterfingers and some uh, Whoppers or something like that. Uh, but then he gets to the bottom of the box and he pulls out a shirt and he, op- he unfolds the shirt and he sees what it reads and it says something like the world's best grandpa or something like that. And this grown man just begins to weep uncontrollably. And I wept with him. It's just beautiful. Um, you know, it's, and, and as he tried to, contr- tried to get himself under control, he looked up and just said, thank you, Lord. That's the good life. That's the good life. You experience the good gifts of God that he gives you, and you acknowledge him as the source of it, and you thank him for it. And you got a thousand opportunities to do it every day. That's the good life. A lot, of, a lot of times people ask, you know, why, why doesn't the Lord just come back to get us right now? You know, and I think that we ask that question because we really think a lot like Ecclesiastes sometimes. Like, what is the point of us even being here? You know, why, does, why doesn't the Lord just come back right now? And, um, and one of the answers you hear to that question a lot is that God has work for us to do. God still has work for us to do. And I think, that, I think that's part of the answer. Another thing I think we could add to that is he's got more blessings to, to pour out on you. He's got more good things to show you. He's got more joys and delights for you to experience in this life. Now, how absurd would it be for that new grandpa that I just told you about if he got thinking to himself and he said, you know, I'm going to get old soon and I'm going to die. 
and probably be forgotten. And even this new grandbaby I got, he's going to eventually get old soon, and he's going to die and probably be forgotten. So what's really the point of it all? I hate life. How ridiculous would that be? You know? Who cares that life under the sun is eventually going to end? It is. We know that. Especially as Christians, we know that. Why should that concern you, though? If you know God and you're rightly related to him, enjoy God's good gifts to you in the here and now and acknowledge him and be thankful for them. That's the good life. So all in all, I think that one of the major things Ecclesiastes teaches us is contentment. Warren Wearsby wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he, the title of it is Be Satisfied. Be satisfied in the, in the, in the simple things in life, in, in even the most simple gifts from the Lord. Be satisfied and be thankful. So I think this does turn out to be a Thanksgiving passage, like I said like I said earlier, um, especially verses 24 and 25, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work and acknowledge those things as good gifts from the hand of the Lord. Because apart from God, who can eat or who can even find enjoyment? I want to show you one last thing from, from Ecclesiastes and then tie it to something that, that Paul said and then, and then we'll close out. If you would, uh, uh, flip over to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And let's look at how Solomon basically closes out the whole book. And we're going to see really hear what the ultimate conclusion is that he comes to after all of his reflections. And we've only just looked at a piece tonight, but after all of his uh, reflections. He's going to say this, in, starting in, in, in verse 13, chapter 12 and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. If this is the world that God made, and it is, then certainly God knows how to experience the greatest amount of joy and happiness in this life. He knows how we can experience that. Okay, so trust him in that and do what he says. His commandments are good for you. They're not burdensome. They are the, they are the way to the good life. To keep his commandments. Godliness. And so now, thinking about what Paul said, and this dawned on me today, really, uh, or maybe it was yesterday, I can't remember. Um, but it dawned on me uh, as I was thinking of just a, a way to basically summarize what I think is the, the, the whole message of Ecclesiastes. It would be what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, and I believe verse 17. Did I get that right? No, 1 Timothy 6, 6. You don't have to turn there, but this is what, this is what Paul said. You know, it's a very well-known verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
What was that leading question that Solomon had at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes? What does man gain by all of his toil? Where is gain to be found in life? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Contentment, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work and acknowledge these things as all gifts from the hand of God to you. Be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's the good life. I think that's Ecclesiastes in one sentence. Uh, another, I actually mentioned a quote from, from St. Augustine, I think in the last sermon that I, that I preached on, on rest in the book of Hebrews. Um, but but St. Augustine said, um, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I think that's another good way to summarize the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think that Solomon eventually landed on that truth. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to experience gain in this life? Get you some godliness with contentment. It's, that's the good life. There is nothing better. There is nothing better than godliness with contentment. That's what I have for you tonight. Let's pray together.